Well, good morning, church. Good morning again to those who are watching from home this morning, and maybe there's some from home who have watched past weeks that are in this room today. Praise God for you and for that. It's good to see you. You've had the privilege of seeing me, but I couldn't always see you. <laughs> Kidding. This is on Pride this morning, so there's a good introduction right there. Football coach Shane Gailey tells of a time when he learned a lesson in humility. Gailey was then head coach of Alabama's Troy State, and they were playing for the national championship. And the week before the big game, he was heading out of the administration building to the practice field when his secretary called out to him to take a phone call. Somewhat irritated, Gailey yelled back to her to, to take a message because he was on his way to practice and the big game coming up. He didn't have time to take some meaningless phone call. She responded, but it's Sports Illustrated. Oh, okay, I'll be right there. And as he made his way back into the building, he began to think about how great this publicity would be uh, for a small school like Troy State to be in Sports Illustrated. He thought about all his achievements he would include in the interview and wondered if even a three-page article would be sufficient to tell the whole story. As he stepped back into the office about to pick up the phone, he started thinking, you know, maybe I'm going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Should I, should I pose or should I go with an action shot, he wondered. His head was spinning with all the possibilities. He picked up the phone with excitement and said, hello, is this Chain uh, Gailey, the person on the other end asked? Yes, it is, he replied confidently. Well, this is Sports Illustrated, and we're calling you to let you know that your subscription is running out. Are you interested in renewing? And Coach Gailey concluded the story by saying this, you are either humble or you will be humbled. You're either humble or you will be humbled. Well, this morning we're brought face to face with a man who had popularity, he had power, he had a palace, but he also had a problem, and it was a big problem. Nebuchadnezzar was a man full of himself, and you know the saying, a person wrapped up in himself makes for a very small package. And Nebuchadnezzar painfully learns how small he really is before the great and powerful king of kings. The one who, who conquered the entire existing world at that time was about to be humbled. He was going to learn that the enemies outside were nothing compared to the enemy within. So look with me, if you're not there in your Bibles, do Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We continue in our study in the Old Testament book of Daniel and uh, of being a bright spot in a dark world. And chapter 4 of Daniel is a rather unique chapter in the Bible because a pagan king tells his story. It's almost as if he, he wrote uh, Daniel chapter 4. And it reads like a, a personal diary. And the structure of chapter 4 is quite fascinating as well. It, it begins with a doxology and it ends with a doxology. And in between those two bookends is a record of the, of the king telling his story. And the king wants the world to know what he learned the hard way. 
So he makes this proclamation in, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Now, by the way, the lapse of time between chapter 3 and chapter 4 is likely uh, three decades or more. And it's worth mentioning as well that some scholars believe that by the time we get to Daniel chapter 4, it is a different king than the king we've read about in chapters 1 through 3. I, I think it's the same king. You can do some research on that yourself. But chapter 4, verse 1, the first doxology, he says, To the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. It's as if Nebuchadnezzar is saying, here is what God did in my life, and I want you to know about it. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He wants to give testimony to what God taught him. And what did God teach him? Well, go to the other side of the bookend for a moment. Chapter 4, verse 37. Chapter 4, verse 37. And it really serves as the summary statement of the chapter and it's going to serve as our takeaway for this morning. Uh, verse 37, Daniel 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Now get this. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Church, it's always better to humble yourself rather than be humbled by God. That's our takeaway for this morning. I want to give it to you right up front. It is always better to humble yourself rather than be humbled by God. Because being humbled by God is not pleasant. A good prayer then for us would be this, God, help me humble myself so that you don't have to do it. God, help me humble myself so that you don't have to do it. Daniel 4 is God's expose on a proud heart, and on center stage is one man's story of how the mighty have fallen. And today... What we have in Daniel chapter 4 is this one man's story of being led from the pinnacle of pride through the valley of humiliation to the praise of God. From the pinnacle of pride to the valley, through the valley of humiliation and to the praise of God. And that really serves as our uh, outline for this morning. First of all, the pinnacle of pride. The pinnacle, pinnacle of pride. Look with me at verse uh, 4 of Daniel 4. This is after the king addresses the entire empire. Now he's going to tell them the story. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Now when the king says that he was at home in my palace, uh, it would really be better to translate that at rest or at ease in my palace. Nebuchadnezzar was enjoying the good life. He was enjoying peace. He had thousands of, of Jews working for him. He had a son who would, could be the future heir on the throne. He was content. He was prosperous. Life just couldn't get any better than this for Nebuchadnezzar. He had no need for God. So verse 5, the king says, I had a dream that made me afraid. I love when translations really are an understatement because that word afraid, that's an understatement there. The word afraid, uh, it really is the thought of extreme terror or fright. 
And again, he has this dream, and so what does he do? He calls in his incompetent dream team to tell him what this dream means, and they come up short again. Surprise! Not sure why the king even bothers with these guys, but he does. And he then turns that the only man he trusted to interpret his dream, and that was the man Daniel. So the king tells his dream in verses 10 through 18. I'm not going to read all that. You can read it for yourself. But, but the Nebuchadnezzar dreams this dream. You find it in those verses. He dreams this dream of a tree. And everything characteristic uh, that is given about the tree is given in the superlative. It was in the middle of the earth. Probably not literally, but just saying it was centered to everything else. It was a humongous tree. It was seen by the entire world. It was abundantly productive. It supplied nourishment for everyone. It sheltered all the animals. I mean, in this, in this dream here for the king, it was a very happy place. It was a happy dream. It was a happy scene. Suddenly, in his dream, this messenger from heaven, that tells us in verse 13, this messenger from heaven brings a message of destruction. That every good thing about this tree would soon come to an end. The tree is chopped down to its stump. And then the stump image switches to a person. The stump becomes a man which reverts to an animal existence. Verse 16. And even though the king could not make complete sense of this dream, the image playing over in his mind was of a tree once prosperous, large and strong, producing abundant fruit, which was going to be chopped down and leaving only a stump that would be protruded out of the ground. He knew that this was no ordinary dream caused by something that he ate the night before, but supernatural and to be left unexplained was just going to eat him up. Now, the king knows this dream has a purpose. He says so in verse 17, really a key verse to this chapter and really the whole book of Daniel. And oddly enough, it's spoken by a pagan king. Verse 17, while he's going through all this, he says, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. Judgment is coming. That's the verdict. Why? So that, next words here, so that, purpose, the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. And so Nebuchadnezzar is among the proud that God chooses to bring glory to himself. And so the dream comes to, to, to Daniel and in verse 19 informs us that when Daniel heard his, this dream, he was greatly perplexed for a time. Now some translations say for an hour. It's really an undefined amount of time. But the point there is, as Daniel's uh, uh, thinking of this dream, he, in pondering this dream, he's troubled. He's perplexed. And he's troubled and perplexed. Uh, it's not because he doesn't know what the dream means. He's troubled and perplexed because he does know what it means. He knows exactly what the dream means, and, and he can't bear the thought of telling this king that he's about to face the judgment of God. And you know, right there, I find a lesson. I find a lesson, because we see Daniel's heart here. Daniel is genuinely broken up over the meaning of the dream. He does not wish well or harm upon the pagan king. 
That's a reality check for me. Do I rejoice when there's someone that, that, that is just what well, I consider an enemy or, or someone maybe a big personality that, that they fall and they go down or some famous celebrities flaunt the success and, and then they fall? Is there any secret rejoicing inside? I go, yes, they got what's coming to them. <laughs> you don't do that, but I've done it. And I understand that, um, you know, when justice is served, there's to be rejoicing in that. But we need to balance that with a heart that breaks for the people who face God's judgment. It pained Daniel to tell the king the message. Does it break your heart to think about God's judgment upon people? It should pain us to speak of the bad news of the coming judgment of Christ on all those who have not put their faith in him. I believe it was Spurgeon who said, we should never talk about hell without shedding tears. Daniel's troubled over what this dream means for the king, and the thought of telling him is just breaking him up. And the pagan king, he comforts and consoles Daniel, and he says, hey, listen, middle of verse 19, whatever it is you got to say to me, even if it's bad news, Daniel, come on, let me have it. And Daniel has been gifted by God to interpret dreams, brings the meaning of the dream to the table. And he tells the king that, the, that he is that tree which grew to great size and influence and, and military success and fame and popularity. But if the king did not acknowledge the God most high, he was going to lose everything, even his sanity. All that the king took pride in would be stripped away and he'd be reduced to an animal existence. Do you see what this is saying? The king is about to go from the palace to the pasture, from grandeur to grazing, from the best to the beast, from outstanding in his field to outstanding in his fields. Right? In the Midwest, they have this joke, what's the definition of a farmer? It's a man outstanding in his field. And you can take that two ways. Well, the warning's been given. Daniel tells him, this is what's coming, <laughs> king. And, and he gives an invitation in verse 27. Verse 27, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. See, a way out is offered to the king before it's too late. Will he humble himself or will he be humbled? There was a young uh, seminary graduate who was invited to speak in a church in, in the area. And this young seminary graduate thought to himself how privileged this church will be to hear a message from him. And so he, he, that Sunday he came into the building from the back and came up to the pulpit, very confident and smug. He was well-dressed. He, he knew what he, had, that what he had, he had what it took to give a great message. He was ready to just impress his audience with his Bible knowledge and polished uh, delivery. Well, as he began to speak, it just wouldn't come together. The words simply wouldn't come out. He was a mess. And so embarrassed and humiliated, he was done. He just walked right out right at the beginning of the sermon and walked right out the door in in, in tears. He, he, He was done. There were two ladies sitting in the front, and one said to the other, you know, If he'd come in like he went out, he would have gone out like he came in. (laughs) That's profound. 
In other words, start humbly and God will move you up. Start arrogantly and God just might move you down. So I pause here to just, just ask, is there, is there a little Nebuchadnezzar in you? Is there a little of Nebuchadnezzar in me? See, none of us are exempt from pride. It has been said, pride is like a beard. It just keeps growing. That is why we must shave it every day. Where is pride showing up in your life right now? Where is it showing up in my life? Is it, is it maybe pride is preventing you from admitting some wrong? Maybe pride is, is getting in the way of you going and giving an apology to someone. And so I say, you know, I really made a mistake here. I've sinned against you. I've, I've really made a mess of things. Maybe it's pride that keeps you on this treadmill of performance and you're exhausted pretending to be someone you're not. Is it pride, perhaps, that even expresses itself in false humility that you continually berate yourself and tell yourself you're good for nothing. That's pride. Why is it pride to kind of say, I'm awful, I'm terrible, I'm no good? Because yourself, you're preoccupied on self. It's pride. Do you feel yourself getting annoyed because someone else is being praised? Pride might be sneaking in. Are you bugged by someone else's pride? You know, the more we have pride in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. It might be a sign. And so, how aware are we of the way that pride manifests itself in our lives? Don't let it grow. Deal with it daily, hourly, if you must. I think Benjamin Franklin nailed it when he said, there's perhaps not one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. You know, there was a pastor who felt he had the best sermon ever on humility. And he was waiting for a large crowd before even preaching it. See, we're not exempt from it. All right, let's get back to Nebuchadnezzar here. We left him at the pinnacle of his pride. And Nebuchadnezzar is now led from the pinnacle of pride to the valley of humiliation. The king tells of how the nightmare of a dream becomes a reality. In verse 28, it says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. What was just described happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And now notice verse 29. He says, Twelve months later. Church, those are grace words. Those are grace words. God gave the king 12 months to change his ways. Now, we can't count on that. We saw some people say, you know, I'm going to wait till I'm on my deathbed like Uncle Billy did, and, and he came to know the Lord. I'm going to wait till then. You can't count on you're going to have that time. You don't know. You might say, I'm not going to do it now, but I'm going to delay it a little bit because I'll have that time. You may not. God here is gracious in giving the king 12 more months to get his act together. And you would have thought, after such a powerful dream, the invitation from Daniel, that he would have humbled himself before God at that moment. He did not. Pride comes before fall, Proverbs 16, 18 says, and a haughty spirit before destruction. When circus acrobat Philippe Petit was rehearsing in Florida, he fell, uh, he fell about 30 feet to a concrete floor. 
Petit then rolled over on his stomach. He began pounding the floor with his fists, and he cried, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I never fall. Well, guess what? The mighty king is about to fall and fall hard. And so a year later, while the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace, he's not the first one who found trouble on the roof of his palace. And the king says, notice this, verse 30, he's walking on the roof of his palace. He's seeing all that he has done. He's looking out on the beautiful Babylon. And he says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence? Now get this, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. By and for, two little words that cause big problems. Now the king had much to boast about. He, he conquered all the, everything around him at that time. He was considered the greatest builder in ancient times. He rebuilt the old palace of his dad and, and then he built two other palaces he built 17 religious temples in Babylon and the surrounding area. He completed two great walls to protect his city. He built the Hanging Gardens, which was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. You see, from a human perspective, he had reasons to boast. And as he looked out from his palace roof, he could go, yes, and I did it all my way. <laughs> see, whenever we think of ourselves as the cause and source of any greatness or power or success, pride is not too far behind. Whenever we do what we're doing for our glory and our recognition and our fame, and, and so others will praise us, pride is getting the better of us. So where do you find yourself saying, I have built this, I've done this. I've done this by my ability. I've done, I've gotten up by my own bootstraps here and I've done this. I'm self-made. What do you point and say, it, it is for my glory, it's for my recognition. Actually, uh, brilliant, that, that odd vestige of the 70s who scribbled his offbeat humor on hippie postcards. He once said, all I ask of life is a constant and exaggerated sense of my own importance. That's the king. He struts around the roof of his palace. He's bragging about what he has done. I love verse 31. It says, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. God is patient. I mean, his delays are, are extensions of his grace. They're opportunities to change, but his patience ends. And without delay, he'll humble those who walk in pride. And then verse 32 lays out what's about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. You'll be driven away from people. You'll live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle. Seven times, which is just another way of saying seven years, seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. He's going to go out and be outstanding in his field. He's going to learn about the birds and the beasts. Verse 33, he says, Immediately, immediately, what has been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Immediately, how quickly God can reduce a person in power and influence just like that. Immediately. One minute, the king was parading on the palace roof, admiring all that he had done, and the next, he was outstanding in his field. 
king is led from the pinnacle of pride through the valley of humiliation. And in the middle of verse 33, it says the king was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle, like ox. Looks like an ox, eats like an ox. It's an ox. His body, it goes on, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. What in the world is going on here? Well, in the, in the ancient pagan world, people often treated insane people like the person or object they claimed to be. And maybe that's what's going on. Or is this some mental illness that we refer today as Bonthropy disorder, there's actually a disorder in which the sufferer believes that he or she is a cow or an ox. Or lycanthropy, which is a form of madness involving the delusion of being an animal. I couldn't help myself, but uh, there was a man who went to a psychiatrist and he says he believes himself to be a dog. The psychiatrist says, well, get up on the couch and let's talk about it. And the man says, I'm not allowed on the couch. <laughs> I know, it's a bad joke. It wasn't first two, but I had to go with it. <laughs> you tell someone that joke later on. See, whatever label we might give it, because we really don't know what's going on here. One thing's for sure. The king has gone insane for seven years. He became like a madman. And Scripture tells us that his insanity is directly related to what happens to his mind that is totally preoccupied with itself. And here's a not-so-flattering thought. Pride puts us in a class with animals. So we got to pause here and just ask, are, are, are you feeling the insanity of your pride? Are the people around you feeling the insanity of your pride? Is it leading you to crazy behavior of doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for different results? Will you pause to consider how pride is keeping you from breaking that vicious chain of a personal struggle in your life. Listen, you do not have to wait until you lose it all before surrendering to the Lord. You don't have to experience the pain of dreadful consequences because of your refusal to humble yourself. Learn from a man, one man, who shares his story of how he had fallen and sank to a subhuman level. You don't have to experience this for yourself. That's the world we live in. Oh, where'd you ever come up with that idea? Here's a man who went from the pinnacle pride to the valley of humiliation and now to the praise of God, to the praise to God. Thank God for this. Verse 34. Verse 34, still in the first person. He says, at the end of that time, the end of that time, which is seven years, and I asked the question, who's ruling the kingdom in the king's absence? I mean, it's anyone's guess. Daniel? I don't know. At the end of that time, the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, it says, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, honored and glorified him who lives forever. And so the insane king looks to the heavens and found the God of heaven. See, his core belief was changed. He came to the realization that God is the one who's in absolute control of all things. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning, but, but, is, but is it time for you to lift your eyes to the heavens? 
Time you say, you know what, this, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I don't have to hit more of rock bottom. I need to lift my eyes to the heaven. I need God in this area of my life. Do you need to cry out to him some area in your, area in your life right now that if you don't deal with it, you, you, it God's going to humble you there. God, help me humble myself so you don't have to do it. King continues, verse 34, he says, Dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one. You see, what breaks the grip of pride more than anything else is a revolutionary change in the way we think about God. The best way to keep our pride in check is to praise and delight in the sovereignty of God. It puts everything else in perspective. To walk humbly in confidence that God rules, to live in quiet awareness that God does what he pleases, that everything he does is right, that all his ways are just. See, one of the best ways to address pride in our lives is to think rightly about God. The king does, and his sanity is restored. Now, if this is the same king, and I believe it is, of chapters 1 and 3, the king finally gets it. To this point, I don't think he really got it. I think he finally gets it here. Now, you may disagree with me on this, and there are other people who are, who are much, much, much smarter than I am who don't agree on this, but I believe this is a story of one man's conversion. Some don't see it as an indication of Nebuchadnezzar's genuine faith in the one true God, but rather just an acknowledgement of Israel's God being greater than his other gods, and they simply added Israel's God to his God collection. That is certainly possible. I just see a marked change in where Nebuchadnezzar was and where he ends up in chapter 7. There seems to be a renouncing of sins and repentance and here's the real kicker for me. This is where I really think it seals the deal, is that God promised to restore his prosperity if he repented of his ways. And the king's prosperity does return to him. It tells us in verse 36 that he had become even greater than before. So I tend to think this conversion here is the real deal. Now, I, I could be wrong, and others are right on this, and you may disagree with me on this and not think it's the real deal. I'm willing to admit that, but you can just ask Nebuchadnezzar when you see him in heaven. <laughs> all right. That's not fair. What we all can agree on, though, is that this mighty man had fallen and fallen hard. It's always better to humble yourself rather than be humbled by God. And so here recorded for us is one man's story of being led from the pinnacle of pride to the valley of humiliation to the praise of God. What's your story? Where are you uh, in, in that journey? Still up here? Passing through here? Giving praise to God? Where are you? See, if we're to be a bright spot in a dark world, then we must be more self-aware of how pride is getting in the way of our influence. Where's the pride in your life that you need to keep in check? Has God been speaking to you and to me about a particular way that pride is right there? It's, it's really at the root of your anger. It's pride. Or, or maybe cutting other people down. It's really pride. Or your hurtful speech that has gone on for way too long. That's really pride. 
or that you're just miserable to be around. Maybe that's pride. Are you on a collision course, but you're ignoring the warnings to humble yourself? In the summer of 1986, two Soviet ships, a liner with more than 1,200 people aboard, and a freighter carrying a cargo of oats, were supposed to pass in the night as they sailed in the Black Sea off the coast of southern Russia. Instead of passing clear of each other, the two ships collided. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the, into the city waters below. News of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technology problem like radar malfunction. It, it wasn't the, the weather elements outside. It wasn't a, a thick fog. No, no, no. The, the cause of the collision was human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby, and both vessels' captains knew for 45 minutes in advance that they were on a collision course, but they ignored the warnings. Both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first. And by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. It's always better to humble yourself rather than be humbled by God. Let's pray. God, we do simply pray, realizing it has profound implications, but we simply pray, help us humble ourselves so that you don't have to. Help us think rightly about you. And wherever there's pride going on in our lives right now, I pray that we'd be aware of it, would acknowledge it, would shave it right down and not mess around with it. Help us, God, to to get our thoughts on the fact that you're the sovereign God, you're the one who's in control. Anything I have has been given by you and from you. That we can praise you, God. We're in your hands. If we get our eyes off of ourselves and what we're able to do, instead look to you, the faithful God, the God who will never let us go, let us down, or fail us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.